It is such a joy to be with you all this morning, and um, we're going to kind of do something a little out of left field. We're going to um, we're going to explore a book in the Bible that probably the majority of you are reading this morning in your devotions. Paul's letter to Philemon, right? <laughs> Um, we are going to be diving into this text, and uh, if you're unfamiliar with Philemon or you're new to it, uh, I had a guy in the first service uh, before we got started, he's just like, hey, Dave, looking at the bulletin, he's like, what does that say up there? I said, that's Philemon. He goes, what is that? I said, it's, that's what we're going to be studying. I didn't even know that was in the Bible, and so this is awesome. Whether you're new to the Bible or just unfamiliar, uh, turn to someone uh, next to you if you need help finding it or check out the table of contents. Uh, but right now, we're going to just read through the entirety of this whole thing, all 25 verses. Um, we're going to experience this text here as it would have been experienced in its first reading, out loud, in public for all to hear and experience. And so if you're able, please join me in standing for the reading of God's word, Paul's letter to Philemon. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Though this is a letter written to one person, Crossroads family, this is a letter written for the benefit not just of the church back then, but for the church right here and now today. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you accordingly. Uh-oh. <laughs> accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, Old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me, in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. And then I love this, guys. He echoes the Joseph story here. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, 
if you consider me your partner, and I know that you do, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. For I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, here we are. Another Sunday in your living room at your feet. And we just ask now, Father, that the Holy Spirit would open our hearts to pay attention to the Word, that the Holy Spirit would open our minds to understand it, and the Holy Spirit would empower us to believe and receive your Word with fruitful obedience. Everything I've prepared for this message, Father, I yield and surrender to you. And ask now, that plain and simple, you'd speak. Your servants, your children are listening. In Christ Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can take a seat. Well, again, good morning, Crossroads family. Love that I get to be here with all of you this morning. And if my math serves me right Last time I preached here on a Sunday morning was a little over seven years ago, and my goodness, let's be honest, a lot has changed, uh, I'm sure, in not just our world, but in your lives, in my lives. But um, one of the best things that happened since then also took place a little over seven years ago. This is a picture of me and my bride, Jacqueline, just a couple weeks ago, graduating seminary, praise the Lord, 12 years after that thing, and... God has been so faithful, but I'll just be the first to admit that you're looking at exhibit A of a guy who outkicked his coverage. Um, uh, <laughs> in our seven plus years of marriage, God has graciously given us two kids, Luke, Ivy, and uh, right now we're just kind of living our best life right now in this joyful little chaotic world of ours. But Crossroads family, I need you to know something here. That picture you see on the screen right there, if you were to rewind the tape just a few years back, you'd be looking at a very different picture. Some of you know firsthand what I'm talking about, and if I were to mention some of them from this very church, many of you would know who they are. Some of you know what I'm talking about because you walked vitally with us through that season of our marriage. And guys, had it not been for the relationships we had with the people walking with us and the hard asks they dared to ask of us, 
This cute little picture you see right here wouldn't have existed because I don't think our marriage would have existed. The word divorce was on the regular in our vocabulary. And when we open our Bibles and we turn to Paul's letter to Philemon, it's like we're opening up a letter between someone walking with two people vitally through a season of division and separation to stand in the gap, to make a hard ask on the foundation of that relationship with them. And when we open up our Bibles to Philemon, it's just like, wow, here we are, Memorial Day weekend. Thanks for a nice, easy message, right? Um, uh, by the way, to all of our servicemen and women, um, it feels so insufficient to say this, but thank you. And just know that um, we remember your fallen comrades with you right now. We remember them. And we're grateful, though, that we are with you and you're with us. And just needed to put that out there as a little side note of gratitude for you. So thank you. Uh, but just coming back to Philemon for a minute here, this is Paul's shortest letter he writes in all scripture. But I dare say that it was his most important letter he wrote. I mean, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, if you've heard of him, you know this guy's got chops with Paul. He says that if we didn't have any other letter in the New Testament but Paul's letter to Philemon, that would do the trick. That would do the trick to help us see what it looks like to be a Jesus follower, both in ancient and modern times. I mean, this thing, though, it is loaded. It is dense. There is a sermon series out there one day that is just waiting to unleash because this thing, you just can't cover all the content in one Sunday morning. So it leaves me a little bit having to kind of slice and dice and figure this thing out and discern, well, what is most important? And I think one of the best things we can do first is just start by getting the backstory. And the backstory goes like this. Paul's writing from prison to stand in the gap between two friends divided, and one friend is this guy named Philemon. Philemon became a Jesus follower through Paul's ministry, and eventually he partners up with this guy we saw in the greetings, Epaphras. He partners up with a guy named Epaphras. Uh, together, they start this church in the city of Colossae. And maybe for those of you who are keeping score, that church in the city of Colossae is the same church to which Paul writes another letter we have in Scripture, Colossians. Fun fact there is that when Paul writes and sends his letter to Philemon, he also writes and sends with it his letter to the Colossians. And so... There's also somebody, something else you need to know, though, about Philemon. The dude is loaded. The dude is loaded so much so that he owns his own slaves, and we will get to that issue in just a minute. But what you need to know for now is that one of his slaves, he wrongs Philemon and runs away. And this brings us to his other friend in the story. Paul's other friend here that he's talking about is this guy named Onesimus. And after Onesimus wrongs Philemon and gets out of Dodge, somehow he finds his way back to Paul. 
Our best New Testament scholarship lands Paul in either three places. He's either a thousand miles away from Colossae in Rome. He's either 980 miles, give or take, south in Caesarea or a hundred miles away in where I think he is, Ephesus. And regardless of where he's at, though, What's important for us here is that he is completely dependent upon the help of others. Outside of just the bare minimum the Romans are providing him for food, clothing, water. And so when Onesimus finds this guy, it's no wonder that he becomes that outside help for Paul. He Essentially, it's like he finds Paul, but really it's more like in the process, Christ finds Onesimus. Somewhere along the way between when he finds Paul and when Paul starts to send him back to Philemon, Onesimus believes in Jesus and starts following him. The story of Philemon is a story about a prodigal slave. But here's the thing, guys. All bets are off in terms of consequences he's going to face when he returns. But what is certain is this. Paul has something to say about it. And that's why he's writing. He's writing Philemon with this mission to, number one, get Philemon to forgive Onesimus. But then, two, to get him to embrace Onesimus no longer as a foe. As family. And as we step into this text together, Crossroads, I'm just wondering what's your backstory today? What's your backstory? Has someone wronged you? Does someone owe you something? Have you wronged someone? Do you owe someone something? Are you being ghosted? Are you ghosting right now? Someone you should be drawing near to. When we step into the letter, Paul is writing to Philemon. This is in-house business here. This isn't Paul writing about a situation between two outsiders who don't believe in Jesus and aren't following him. No, this is Paul writing and speaking into, standing in the gap of a divide between two people who should be united. This is a letter that has crazy implications because, look, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's personal, no doubt. But let's not confuse the gospel being personal with the gospel being private. The gospel may be personal, but it is not private. Philemon is an invitation to not mind your own business. Philemon is an invitation to see your business as the flourishing of our relationships with one another. Not just me and God. Not just me and whoever my Philemon might be in my life. But my relationship with Philemon, oh, and the other guy there, Onesimus, and playing a part in the flourishing of all our relationships. And so this is what we are stepping into. 
You can obviously see just the implications of this being real because we all have to be, we all have to forgive. We all need to be forgiven. We all are called to embrace. We're all called to be embraced. And so as we step into this text here, we're going to break this thing down into three parts. Part one, we're going to just explore Paul's relationship with Philemon. And then as we go from there, we're going to move into part two where we're going to explore the big ask Paul is going to make of Philemon on the basis of his relationship with him. But then as we close up shop in part three, um, we're going to just see the why and the how that makes all of this possible. Not just for Philemon, but for you and me if we're going to take Paul at his word and receive as we've been received. And so we're going to dive into this thing now, part one in our conversation. We're going to just explore the relationship. And as we do that, we're going to check out first verse 6. That's really the heart of this relationship here. And I love it. It's prayer. And in verse 6, Paul shares not just the content of how he's been praying for Philemon. He also shares with him what is the heartbeat of their relationship. Check it out there with me in verse 6. Paul prays that the sharing or partnership of your faith it may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. This prayer that Paul prays for Philemon, just know, this isn't a prayer talking about sharing his faith in terms of evangelism. This is a prayer talking about sharing his faith in terms of that word we love so much here at Crossroads, community. We love, we love that word community so much here at Crossroads. It's made its way into our top three list of values. We see community as the intentional pursuit of one another. And I think that just nails on the head what Paul is trying to get at here when he uses that specific word in his prayer, that the sharing of your faith. Sharing. What's that all about? Well, this word sharing is that beautiful and probably one of the most important words we have in our entire New Testament. You see it there, koinonia. Maybe you've heard of it before, but koinonia, it gets at just this idea of intimate oneness that leads to couple things here. You see, it leads to partnership, sharing, participation with one another. Again, just feel the communal aspect of it in those words. We see it first used in the New Testament in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, where it describes the life of the early Jesus movement. Check it out here on the screen. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, notice that the word there used to translate koinonia is what? Fellowship. Don't confuse fellowship with this cute Christian kumbaya gathering. Don't get me wrong. They're eating food, having drinks, enjoying life with one another. But at the heart of this kind of koinonia... Koinonia was not something for them that they just sat around thinking about. Koinonia that is described here 
and in the rest of the book of Acts, this is a koinonia that they are simply being about. It's what caused them to be described as contributors, not consumers. It's what causes us to remember the early church as people who sought missional engagement, not spiritual entertainment. And I just wonder, I mean, it's kind of funny that we're going through this text this morning when we decided to say Shabbat Shalom to coffee for a week. Uh, How's everyone doing, by the way, uh, in not having the coffee available? A little bit of a litmus test there for where you might be standing here. But just think about this for a minute. At the heart of their relationships with one another as the early Jesus movement, it was koinonia. Let me just ask you this question, guys. Is koinonia at the heart of your relationships with one another? Is koinonia, when people think about their relationships with you, do they think of it as one that's marked with koinonia? Are you here this morning to be a consumer or contributor? Are you here this morning to go from here and be sent out with missional engagement? Or are you simply here for just this spiritual entertainment? There's a lot of places you can go to get that. Let this not be one of them. Where are you this morning? How is your relationships marked? What would your spouse say? What would your coworkers say? Shoot, if I was to look at your social media right now, what would your social media say? Partner or opponent? Koinonia was at the heart of the early church. It was at the heart of Paul's relationship. And it's on the foundation of this relationship, marked by koinonia, that we then move into part two of our conversation, where Paul then starts to take his elbow and just lean into this knot in his back. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Shoulders, all knots. No? Okay, never mind. Move on. (laughs) But we're going to just continue to move on here in exploring this because if we believe in and we're following Jesus, guys, koinonia shouldn't just be happening here because this is just 10% of what we do as Jesus followers. Koinonia should be the mark of everything going on in the other 90% on our street corners in our workplaces, in our home life. And guys, the reason for this is because koinonia is at the heart of the life of God himself. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God exists in koinonia. God exists in intimate oneness. God exists in this mutual sharing, this partnership, this participation with one another. And when you think about his relationship, not just within himself, but toward you and me, we see that God is a contributor to our welfare. We see that God is a, 
He's about missional engagement with us, not seeking entertainment from us. This is so beautiful because when we see Christ, we see a God who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. Not to take it and keep it for himself, but to give it away. This is why koinonia must be at the heart of our relationships, just like it was at the heart of Paul's relationship and at the heart of his prayer for Philemon. And so let's get after it in part two here where now we see the ask he makes of the guy. And starting here, we're going to just do a little bit of like a thousand foot overview of verses 8 through about 19. We'll lean, we'll go and dive deep on a couple points. But again, this is loaded and we can't cover it all. But what I do want us to start first in noticing is verse 8 where it says accordingly or maybe your Bible says therefore. Anytime you read the Bible and you see those words at the beginning of a sentence, just know that something's about to go down. But what should surprise us here is what goes down isn't the law, but love. Look how Paul starts to build this case on the foundation of love for what he's going to ask of Philemon. Verse 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus whose father I became in my imprisonment. I love how Paul writes this here. Already we know that Philemon's relationship with Onesimus is one marked by Philemon being a master and Onesimus being that word we so hate in our culture, what he's a slave. And so let's just go there for a minute. Let's address the elephant in the room have a conversation here about slavery in the first century. Again, there's so much you could say right here about this topic. Hundreds of books have been written by scholars about slavery and the Bible. And so what I want to do is just give you three quick facts here about slavery in the first century that I think can just help us read Philemon a little less critically and a little more responsibly. So let's go there. Number one, first century slavery, it wasn't marked or based on race or ethnicity. It was primarily based on whether or not you were two, one of two things, or maybe even both. Either a prisoner of war or you owed a debt you just could not pay off. And I think that's more the case for, Phile- or for Onesimus, is that he's got a debt he owes Philemon he can't pay off. And so he in, submits himself to being the guy's slave. It's fact number one. Number two, first century slavery resulted in the complete loss of your rights. Not only that, Guys, it essentially lowered your social status right down to a price tag. Right down to what you were purchased for. Right down to the debt you owed. Think about that on the impact of your psyche about your sense of self, your identity, your purpose. Fact number three here. First century slavery laws stated that anyone who sheltered a runaway slave could face charges. 
Once a slave was returned to their master, all bets were off in terms of the consequences they would face. And I just think that when we consider these three facts here about first century slavery, they, I think they help us move the ball down the field to read Philemon a little less critically and a little more responsibly. But not only that, I think we see how Paul is starting to just thread the needle here in not laying down the law but walking in love because technically he is obeying and abiding by Roman law. But the needle he's threading here is that he's also overtly subverting Roman law with the law of God, love. We see it in how he's talking about Philemon in verse 10. When we come back to verse 10 and we read those words, I appeal to you on behalf of my child, Onesimus, we should notice something and be very surprised. He doesn't talk about Onesimus as a slave. He doesn't say, I appeal to you, Philemon, on behalf of your runaway slave, Onesimus. What Paul's doing here, guys, is he is refusing to see this guy through the lens of Rome. Instead, he's seeing Onesimus through the lens of his standing, not in the empire, but in the kingdom, the kingdom of God. It makes me think about how Paul writes in that other letter he sends to Philemon in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. Check it out here on the screen. Here, that is talking about for us as Jesus followers, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, what? Slave, free. And then I love this right here. But Christ is all and in all. End of the story. Praise the Lord. That is what defines who we are and why we're here. So when Paul's writing Philemon and he says, I write to you on behalf of my son Onesimus. We should see that Paul is not talking about someone's slave here, but someone's kid. Yeah, he's talking about his kid, but we know ultimately whose kid he really is. He's talking about a slave whose identity and purpose has been completely overturned. The script has been flipped, and now he's not a slave. He's a son, ultimately of the king of the universe. And I just got to ask you guys for a moment, what defines you? Who are you? Why are you here? You are not what you do. Your net worth is not your self-worth. You are not where... You are not defined ultimately by your relationships with one another. We are ultimately defined by our relationship with our creator. I just want you to know that your successes or failures don't make you a success or failure. You are not your job. You are not your income. You are not your political party. I'll even dare to say you are not your country. 
Christ is all and in all. End of the story. And this is good news for us who believe in Jesus, that our identity and purpose comes from the greatest identity and purpose we could ever think of. And then some. And so, as we take this in, you can just imagine Paul's saying all of this to massage Philemon so that by the time we get to verse 17 and he makes the big ask, it's like maybe, just maybe, Philemon is going to see this the same way Paul does and have his heart open to what he says right here in verse 17. Check it out with me. So, If you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything at all, charge that to my account. Here in verses 17 and 18, Paul finally just gets the cat out of the bag, says what he's been trying to say this whole time. And one thing's worth pointing out here specifically in verse 17. um, It's that word partner. If you consider me your partner, it's the Greek word koinonos, which sounds a lot like what? Koinonia. Koinonos is the root word of koinonia. Why this matters here is this. Paul sees his relationship with Philemon as a relationship where essentially he's saying this to him. I know you consider me your koinonos because our relationship is one of koinonia. And a koinonia kind of relationship is one that's personal but never private, Philemon. Your relationship with Onesimus is my relationship with you. Receive him as you would receive me. But then when he gets to verse 18, he just lays out this other powerful statement. It's one that just assumes Onesimus has wronged you. He does owe you something. And what's even more surprising here, though, is what he does with those assumptions. Charge it to my account. And then check out verse 19, how Paul doubles down on this. The dude is just pounding this guy now. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. I will repay it. The whole time we're reading this, y'all, it's just like we just maybe want to put ourselves in Philemon's situation. I just think about, I just imagine some of the things you guys have experienced in your life. The wrongs people have committed against you. The debts people might owe you. What would you say to Paul if he's making this appeal to you? Just imagine for some of you, you're like, yeah, Paul, I hear you. I hear you. You don't know how that person wronged me. You don't know what they did to me. You don't know what they owe me. You don't know what they took away. You don't know how they took away my innocence, my dignity, my sense of personhood. You want me to receive them? Yeah, right. How? Why? Do you feel the weight of this text here? This ain't something that's just out there in Bible land. This is real life texts for our life right here. 
And when you ask that valid question, how can I, whoa. You're a little, this is where my wife would say, this is why we need a rug pad, Dave. Um, <laughs> but when you think about the questions asked there, how can I receive someone who's wronged me? Why? This is where we got to move on in the conversation to part three because we can't do it in and of ourselves. If we're going to receive anyone who's ever wronged us, we must first be received by someone greater. So let's just go there and close up shop in part three of our conversation as we just explore the source of what makes all of this possible, the gospel. And as I understand it, guys, this is the only letter written by Paul where he doesn't explicitly, Paul doesn't explicitly write or talk about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul doesn't have to talk about the gospel because here in his letter to Philemon, he's being about the gospel. But there is another letter Paul writes. There's another letter Paul writes where he's addressing a similar situation about calling God's people to receive one another. And there in that letter, he's very explicit with the gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we see it right here. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. You just see it there. Reconciling, reconciliation. And if you see that up there on the screen and you're just like, what's he getting at? What's he talking about? All you got to do is just keep reading two verses later and we see what might be one of the most, if not the most important text in all of Scripture. And maybe we can just read this together. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hmm. Receiving the people who've wronged us, receiving the people who owe us, it doesn't start with what we do. It starts with what God did. It doesn't start with you and me. I'll try and find a way to receive them. No, you don't got to do that. God already did. God already found a way, made a way in Christ by him becoming your substitute. This is why the substitute of Christ is so beautiful. Because it's like on the cross, Jesus, like Paul, he says, Father, if these people have wronged you, and we know they have, if they owe you anything, and we know they do, charge it to my account. And then with his hands and feet on the cross, with his blood, says, I, Jesus, I'll repay it. We... We don't receive because we're so good. We receive the ones who wronged us because God is so good. Crossroads family, what I'm trying to tell you here is this. We receive because we've been received. We receive because we've been received. Someone stood in our place. Someone stood in the gap. And now we go living our lives doing the same thing. 
Not to be received, but because we are received. This is how, this is why the gospel makes a way when nothing else, even within ourselves, can make another way. And so here's just what I want you to do. I've got three people in mind here. Maybe some of you, you're still waiting. You're still waiting for the person who wronged you to come back like Philemon did. Or like Onesimus, I'm sorry. You're waiting for Onesimus to come back to you. To say those words, I was wrong. I'm sorry. I repent. Please forgive me. For those of you who are waiting, there is no guarantee that that they will come. For some of you, that day can't come because they're no longer here. But here's what I want to tell you. God sees you. He wants that for you. And whether or not your Philemon will come back to you, his grace is sufficient and enough to sustain you. And dare I even say, heal you. The second person I've got in mind here with this text, you're not waiting. You're withholding. Onesimus has already returned. He's confessed his wrongs against you. He owns that he owes you something. And you're withholding your forgiveness and embrace and living a life of anger, bitterness, resentment, and you just won't let it go. Could this just be the first time? Maybe ever? Or in a really long time where you finally see that receiving them doesn't have anything to do with how good you are. It has everything to do with how good God is. That maybe you see for the first time that you can receive them because of how received you are. Are you ignoring their calls? Pick it up. Are you ghosting their texts? Text them back. Do whatever it takes between this Sunday and the next to receive the Onesimus who's coming back to you. Be reconciled as Christ has made you reconciled with your Father in heaven. And finally, the third person I've got in mind here, you're still running. You've wronged someone, you owe them, and you've ghosted them. And I just want you to consider these words that Paul says here in verse 11. There's one word he uses here, useless. That's a useless way of existing because it's a way of existing apart from Christ. And the prescription here is pretty simple. Confess your sin, repent, and believe the gospel. Earlier on, um, I mentioned the chaos that developed between my wife and me. You saw that cute, happy picture. Told you a little bit about just some of the chaos that was breaking out. But um, I got this little something here that my wife wrote. 
reflecting on that season of our life, and I'd like to read it to you. She wrote this yesterday, so it's fresh out of the oven. <laughs> um, she wrote here, our marriage mentors literally asked us to do the same thing Paul asked Philemon, receive one another. I can't tell you the number of times we heard the phrase, leave, cleave, and receive. What did this actually mean for us? It meant that despite the ways we had hurt, wronged, or dismissed one another, we looked beyond that to welcome one another as God's gift to us. We had to forgive. Like, really forgive. We had to have many difficult conversations, cry many tears, sometimes not just once, but over and over. In doing so, we were able to see the grace of God cover the hurt. And praise God, we're here to tell a story of his resurrection power. She's good. Good writer. <laughs> For you, the person in your life, it might not be a spouse. It could be a parent, a sibling, a friend who is gone astray. What do you do with this? Write the apology letter. Set up the coffee. Show up at their house. And like the person who is withholding forgiveness and embrace, you too do this before next Sunday. The imperative is now. Be reconciled. Be reconciled. Believe the good news that God so lavishly offers you and be received by God through faith in Christ and go seek to be received even if they don't receive you back.